Chapter Eight of Round the Moon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Round the Moon by Jules Verne, Chapter Eight, at seventy-eight thousand five hundred and fourteen leagues. What had happened? Whence the cause of this singular intoxication, the consequences of which might have been very disastrous? A simple blunder of Michel's, which, fortunately, Nicol was able to correct in time. After a perfect swoon, which lasted some minutes, the captain, recovering first, soon collected his scattered senses. Although he had breakfasted only two hours before, he felt a gnawing hunger, as if he had not eaten anything for several days. Everything about him, stomach and brain, were over-excited to the highest degree. He got up and demanded from Michel a supplementary repast. Michel, utterly done up, did not answer. Nicol then tried to prepare some tea, destined to help the absorption of a dozen sandwiches. He first tried to get some fire, and struck a match sharply. What was his surprise to see the sulphur shine with so extraordinary a brilliancy as to be almost unbearable to the eye? From the gas-burner which he lit rose a flame equal to a jet of electric light. A revelation dawned on Nicholl's mind. That intensity of light, the physiological troubles which had arisen in him, the over-excitement of all his moral and quarrelsome faculties, he understood all. The oxygen! he exclaimed. And leaning over the air apparatus, he saw that the tap was allowing the scentless, colorless gas to escape freely, life-giving, but in its pure state, producing the gravest disorders in the system. Michel had blunderingly opened the tap of the apparatus to the full. Nicol hastened to stop the escape of oxygen with which the atmosphere was saturated, which would have been the death of the travelers, not by suffocation, but by combustion. An hour later, the air less charged with it restored the lungs to their normal condition. By degrees the three friends recovered from their intoxication, but they were obliged to sleep themselves sober over their oxygen as a drunkard does over his wine. When Michel learned his share of the responsibility of this incident, he was not much disconcerted. This unexpected drunkenness broke the monotony of the journey. Many foolish things have been said while under its influence, but all so quickly forgotten. "'And then,' added the merry Frenchman, "'I am not sorry to have tasted a little of this heady gas. Do you know, my friends, that a curious establishment might be founded with rooms of oxygen, where people whose system is weakened could for a few hours live a more active life?' Fancy parties where the room was saturated with this heroic fluid, theatres where it should be kept at high pressure. What passion in the souls of the actors and spectators! What fire! What enthusiasm! And if, instead of an assembly, only a whole people could be saturated, what activity in its functions! What a supplement to life it would derive! From an exhausted nation they might make a great and strong one, and I know more than one state in old Europe 
which ought to put itself under the regime of oxygen for the sake of its health. Michel spoke with so much animation that one might have fancied that the tap was still too open, but a few words from Barbicane soon scattered his enthusiasm. "'That is all very well, friend Michel,' said he. "'But will you inform us where these chickens came from, which have mixed themselves up in our concert?' "'Those chickens?' "'Yes.' Indeed, half a dozen chickens and a fine cock were walking about, flapping their wings and chattering. "'Ah, the awkward things!' exclaimed Michel. "'The oxygen has made them revolt.' "'But what do you want to do with these chickens?' asked Barbicane. "'To acclimatize them in the moon, by Jove!' "'Then why did you hide them?' "'A joke, my worthy president, a simple joke.' which has proved a miserable failure. I wanted to set them free on the lunar continent without saying anything. Oh, what would have been your amazement on seeing these earthly-winged animals pecking in the lunar fields? You rascal! You unmitigated rascal! replied Barbicane. You do not want oxygen to mount to the head. You were always what we were under the influence of the gas. You were always foolish." "'Ah, who says that we were not wise, then?' replied Michel Ardin. After this philosophical reflection, the three friends set about restoring the order of the projectile. Chickens and cock were reinstated in their coop. But whilst proceeding with this operation, Barbicane and his two companions had a most desired perception of a new phenomenon. From the moment of leaving the earth, their own weight, that of the projectile, and the objects it enclosed, had been subject to an increasing diminution. If they could not prove this loss of the projectile, a moment would arrive when it would be sensibly felt upon themselves and the utensils and instruments they used. It is needless to say that a scale would not show this loss, for the weight destined to weigh the object would have lost exactly as much as the object itself. But a spring steel-yard, for example, the tension of which was independent of the attraction, would have given a just estimate of this loss. We know that the attraction, otherwise called the weight, is in proportion to the densities of bodies, and inversely as the squares of the distances. Hence this effect. If the earth had been alone in space, if the other celestial bodies had been suddenly annihilated, the projectile, according to Newton's laws, would weigh less as it got further from the earth, but without ever losing its weight entirely, for the terrestrial attraction would always have made itself felt at whatever distance. But in reality, a time must come when the projectile would no longer be subject to the law of weight, after allowing for the other celestial bodies whose effects could not be set down as zero. Indeed, the projectile's course was being traced between the earth and the moon. As it distanced the earth, the terrestrial attraction diminished, but the lunar attraction rose in proportion. There must then come a point where these two attractions would neutralize each other. The projectile would possess weight no longer. If the moon's and the earth's densities had been equal, this point would have been at an equal distance between the two orbs, but taking the different densities into consideration, 
it was easy to reckon that this point would be situated at forty-seven sixtieths of the whole journey, that is, at seventy-eight thousand five hundred fourteen leagues from the earth. At this point, a body having no principle of speed or displacement in itself would remain immovable forever, being attracted equally by both orbs, and not being drawn more towards one than towards the other. Now, if the projectile's impulsive force had been correctly calculated, it would attain this point without speed, having lost all trace of weight, as well as all the objects within it. What would happen then? Three hypotheses presented themselves. One, either it would retain a certain amount of motion and pass the point of equal attraction, and fall upon the moon by virtue of the excess of the lunar attraction over the terrestrial. Two, or, its speed failing and unable to reach the point of equal attraction, it would fall back upon the earth by virtue of the excess of the terrestrial attraction over the lunar. Three, or lastly, animated with sufficient speed to enable it to reach the neutral point, but not sufficient to pass it, it would remain forever suspended in that spot like the pretended tomb of Mahomet, between the zenith and the nadir. Such was their situation, and Barbicane clearly explained the consequences to his traveling companions, which greatly interested them. But how should they know when the projectile had reached this neutral point, situated at that distance, especially when neither themselves nor the objects enclosed in the projectile would be any longer subject to the laws of weight. Up to this time the travellers, whilst admitting that this action was constantly decreasing, had not yet become sensible to its total absence. But that day, about eleven o'clock in the morning, Nicol having accidentally let a glass slip from his hand, the glass, instead of falling, remained suspended in the air. "'Ah!' exclaimed Michel Ardin. That is rather an amusing piece of natural philosophy. And immediately divers other objects, firearms and bottles, abandoned to themselves, held themselves up as by enchantment. Diana, too, placed in space by Michel, reproduced, but without any trick, the wonderful suspension practiced by Caston and Robert Houdin. Indeed, the dog did not seem to know that she was floating in air. The three adventurous companions were surprised and stupefied. Despite their scientific reasonings, they felt themselves being carried into the domain of wonders. They felt that weight was really wanting to their bodies. If they stretched out their arms, they did not attempt to fall. Their heads shook on their shoulders. Their feet no longer clung to the floor of the projectile. They were like drunken men having no stability in themselves. Fancy had depicted men without reflection, others without shadow. But here, reality, by the neutralization of attractive forces, produced men in whom nothing had any weight, and who weighed nothing themselves. Suddenly, Michel, taking a spring, left the floor and remained suspended in the air, like Murillo's monk of the Cousine des Anges. The two friends joined him instantly, and all three formed a miraculous ascension in the center of the projectile. "'Is it to be believed? 
"'Is it probable? Is it possible?' exclaimed Michel. "'And yet it is so. Ah, if Raphael had seen us thus, what an assumption he would have thrown upon canvas!' "'The assumption cannot last,' replied Barbicane. "'If the projectile passes the neutral point, the lunar attraction will draw us to the moon.' "'Then our feet will be upon the roof,' replied Michel. "'No,' said Barbicane, "'because the projectile's centre of gravity is very low. It will only turn by degrees.' "'Then all our portables will be upset from top to bottom. That is a fact.' "'Calm yourself, Michel,' replied Nicholl. "'No upset is to be feared. Not a thing will move, for the projectile's evolution will be imperceptible.' Just so, continued Barbicane, and when it is past the point of equal attraction, its base, being the heavier, will draw it perpendicularly to the moon. But, in order that this phenomenon should take place, we must have passed the neutral line. Pass the neutral line, cried Michel. Then let us do as the sailors do when they cross the equator. A slight slide movement brought Michel back towards the padded side. Thence he took a bottle and glasses, placed them in space before his companions, and, drinking merrily, they saluted the line with a triple hurrah. The influence of these attractions scarcely lasted an hour. The travellers felt themselves insensibly drawn towards the floor, and Barbicane fancied that the conical end of the projectile was varying a little from its normal direction towards the moon. By an inverse motion the base was approaching first. The lunar attraction was prevailing over the terrestrial. The fall towards the moon was beginning, almost imperceptibly as yet, but by degrees the attractive force would become stronger, the fall would be more decided. The projectile, drawn by its base, would turn its cone to the earth, and fall with ever-increasing speed onto the surface of the Selenite continent. Their destination would then be attained. Now nothing could prevent the success of their enterprise, and Nicholl and Michel Ardin shared Barbicane's joy. Then they chatted of all the phenomena which had astonished them one after the other, particularly the neutralization of the laws of weight. Michel Ardin, always enthusiastic, drew conclusions which were purely fanciful. "'Ah, my worthy friends!' he exclaimed. "'What progress we should make if on earth we could throw off some of that weight, some of that chain which binds us to her! It would be the prisoner set at liberty. No more fatigue of either arms or legs. Or, if it is true that in order to fly on the earth's surface, to keep oneself suspended in the air merely by the play of the muscles, there requires a strength of one hundred and fifty times greater than that which we possess. A simple act of volition, a caprice, would bear us into space, if attraction did not exist. "'Just so,' said Nicholl, smiling. "'If we could succeed in suppressing weight as they suppress pain by anesthesia, that would change the face of modern society.' "'Yes,' cried Michel, full of his subject. "'Destroy weight, and no more burdens!' "'Well said,' replied Barbicane. "'But if nothing had any weight, nothing would keep in its place. 
not even your hat on your head, worthy Michel, nor your house, whose stones only adhere by weight, not a boat, whose stability on the water is caused only by weight, not even the ocean, whose waves would no longer be equalized by terrestrial attraction, and lastly, not even the atmosphere, whose atoms, being no longer held in their places, would disperse into space. That is tiresome, retorted Michel. Nothing like these matter-of-fact people for bringing one back to the bare reality. But console yourself, Michel, continued Barbicane, for if no orb exists from whence all laws of weight are banished, you are at least going to visit one where it is much less than on the earth. The moon? Yes, the moon, on whose surface objects weigh six times less than on the earth, a phenomenon easy to prove. "'And we shall feel it?' asked Michel. "'Evidently, as two hundred pounds will only weigh thirty pounds on the surface of the moon. "'And our muscular strength will not diminish?' "'Not at all. Instead of jumping one yard high, you will rise eighteen feet high.' "'But we shall be regular Hercules in the moon!' exclaimed Michel. "'Yes,' replied Nicholl. For if the height of the Selenites is in proportion to the density of their globe, they will be scarcely a foot high. Lilliputians, ejaculated Michel, I shall play the part of Gulliver. We are going to realize the fable of the giants. This is the advantage of leaving one's own planet and overrunning the solar world. One moment, Michel, answered Barbicane. If you wish to play the part of Gulliver— only visit the inferior planets, such as Mercury, Venus, or Mars, whose density is a little less than that of the Earth. But do not venture into the great planets—Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune—for there the order will be changed, and you will become Lilliputian. And in the Sun? In the Sun, if its density is thirteen hundred and twenty-four thousand times greater— and the attraction is twenty-seven times greater than on the surface of our globe, keeping everything in proportion, the inhabitants ought to be at least two hundred feet high. "'By Jove!' exclaimed Michel. "'I shall be nothing more than a pygmy, a shrimp!' "'Gulliver with the giants,' said Nicholl. "'Just so,' replied Barbicane." and it would not be quite useless to carry some pieces of artillery to defend oneself. Good, replied Nicholl. Your projectiles would have no effect on the sun. They would fall back on the earth after some minutes. That is a strong remark. It is certain, replied Barbicane. The attraction is so great on this enormous orb that an object weighing seventy thousand pounds on the sun would weigh but 1,920 pounds on the surface of the earth. If you were to fall upon it, you would weigh, uh, let me see, about 5,000 pounds, a weight which you would never be able to raise again. The devil, said Michel, one would want a portable crane. However, we will be satisfied with the moon for the present. There, at least, we shall cut a great figure. We will see about the sun— by and by. End of chapter.